Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we chat with Elise Westhoff, President and CEO of the Philanthropy Roundtable, about the promise of American philanthropy and what is keeping us from realizing it. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. Perhaps I should have said fully realizing it in that introduction, because of course we are realizing it and have realized it for a long time in this country. We'll be talking about that with Elise. Um, thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. This is our second season, and we're starting to feel a little more at ease with this whole podcast thing. Although I discovered that my sister-in-law is now occasionally listening to these shows, so there has been familial infiltration. Uh, I can now look forward to even more awkward conversations at family gatherings. So I got that going for me. Of course, if you're family and listening to this, I'm only kidding. Uh, Elise Westhoff is not family, uh, not that I know of anyway, but she is like me, a Hoosier. So that's kind of like family. She is also like me, a graduate of Indiana University, the Athens of the Midwest, where after graduation, she directed major gift fundraising for neuroscience programs at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Before that, Elise worked in planned giving and major gifts at the New York Public Library. And after her tenure at IU, she worked at the Snyder Foundation as executive director. That's a really broad and interesting resume, as you can tell. And it has recently become even broader and more interesting uh, when Elise was named the head of the Philanthropy Roundtable last June. It is a pleasure to have you with us, Elise. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And you know, I always enjoy talking with a fellow Hoosier. Where are you from in Indiana again? I'm from Indianapolis. So, uh, yep, spent my my whole life there and loved my time at IU, as I know you did too. And uh, best place in the world. And then decided, why not go to New York? Because what's a better next step? (laughs) (laughs) It's a natural next step from Indiana University is to New York, the New York Public Library, (laughs) among other things. Uh, Yeah, that was back. We we were at IU back when it was a basketball school and not a football school. So that's that's a lot. It's it's so true. Um, I I was there for the demise of Bobby Knight, which I know we all remember. Were you there? Were you there that year? I was. I was. No, I had just left. I had just left. So I was still, he was still doing his thing when I was there. Sad to see him fall like that, but uh, it was definitely a memorable year. (laughs) He was was, uh, someone who was celebrated for his philanthropy. That was always obviously what night defenders would usually trot out. (laughs) <laughs> when the latest, uh, you know, violation had occurred, the the library at IU, as I recall, was his special cause. Do you remember that? I, I don't remember that. Oh, yeah. That's uh, I tell me more. No, I don't know anymore. I all I know <laughs> is they're very unlikely to rename it the Bob Knight, you know, Library. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> well, let's um. Let's start with the Philanthropy Roundtable, because many of our listeners may be somewhat or even completely unfamiliar with it and its work. Uh, What does the Roundtable do and why? 
Well, the Roundtable is a network of donors who share values. So we are specifically focused on liberty, opportunity, and personal responsibility. And we're, we aim to, to build a, a, a movement of people who want to be effective in their charitable giving and move um, those values forward. Um, part of uh, the way that we accomplish that is um, by protecting Americans' freedom to give to the causes they believe in without government intervention. Um, because we think more people are more generous when they're passionate about what they're giving to, whether it's improving education or healthcare, supporting criminal justice reform, whatever they care deeply about, they need to have the, pers- the freedom to pursue that. And I think charitable giving in our country has, has been um, so vibrant and successful because it's had flexibility and, and it's allowed people to have the freedom to pursue what they, they want to do. So at the round table, we want to help support that. And we also want to expand charitable giving so that everyone can, everyone can participate in it and be part of strengthening their community. And so, um, you know, we just think the tradition of philanthropy in this country is is really important to the fabric of our society. And without it, you know, uh, it's scary to think where we would be. So we want to preserve that experimental and innovative spirit that um, has always been part of the charitable tradition. It's um, interesting that you use the word tradition, uh, that America has a, a particularly unique uh, tradition of philanthropy. It seems to be particularly vibrant. Um, is uh, Why is that exactly? <clears throat> Can you delve into that a little bit for us or have you delved into that yet in this new post? Um, uh, both today, currently, and historically, why, why is American philanthropy different uh, than it seems to be in other countries and how is it different? Well, I think part of it is that um, America is built on this entrepreneurial spirit we all have it here and um, or many of us have it here. And it's, I think, part of what makes America so great. So um, for, for a very, very long time, Americans have voluntarily come together to solve society's problems. Um, and, you know, particularly when the government can't or shouldn't be involved in something. And again, going back to that, that thought about, um, you know, just the the experimental nature of it. And, it, you know, I think people here are willing to, you know, rely on private solutions to solve problems. And it allows us to, to take risks. So that that has just always been part of the American tradition of philanthropy. In terms of just the numbers, um, American donors gave about four hundred and fifty billion dollars to charity in 2019. And um, the last three years have been the the three highest years on record for charitable giving. And even, you know, I think we were all worried during the pandemic with the economic downturn that we would see those numbers fall. Uh, But in in fact, it's, it's the opposite. Charitable giving and the first six months, and I think we we just got data on the, the first nine months, the first nine months of the of 2020, um, was up about seven and a half percent, and we expect that number to either you know go up a little bit or or stay consistent. So it's it's pretty incredible. I think you know people just have that spirit they that in this country that they want to help their neighbors and they, they believe that that they have the ability. 
um, through their charitable work and volunteer work to to help their neighbors and maybe in a more effective way than government can. So that's also at the root of um, at the heart of what the roundtable believes is that, you know, we're we're better equipped to solve those problems through communities than, you know, at the the government level that that just isn't quite as uh, innovative and effective as uh, as people are. Oh, in a sense, uh, the vibrancy of, of the American charitable tradition uh, depends to some extent on our skepticism toward governmental efficacy. I think that's right. And I think it's also, you know, the role of government. You know, I think this country is is built on the idea that the government serves certain functions and it was built to serve those functions quite well. And, and the other functions that it shouldn't serve, it just isn't really built to, to do those things effectively. And we see that over and over. I think, you know, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you can agree that government hasn't always been so great at solving some of our, our, the issues that we're, we're facing as a country. So it's just the way that, that we're, we're built as a country. And it sort of was our, the founders ideals when they, when they um, came up with the concept of how government would, would function. Those seem to be decreasingly popular ideals, or at least uh, increasingly challenged ideals today. So let's let's right, hop right into what that might mean for um, philanthropy and for giving. Um, I know you're very concerned about some of the things that are being talked about right now uh, in terms of um, um, uh, changes or reforms that are being um, promoted, uh, either by private actors or by government actors. I'll just... Uh, I'll give you a list of three areas that maybe you can sort of take us through uh, your concerns of what you're seeing in these areas right now. One would be philanthropic freedom. I know that's a uh, concern of the roundtables, uh, you know, preserving philanthropy from governmental or the state's overregulation. Second would be donor privacy. And that that's a big one, I think. Um, and we, we see that already happening in the, in the new Congress. And uh, the third would be the, politic- the politicization of philanthropy. Um, can you speak to maybe some of the threats that you're seeing uh, in those areas um, right now? What, what would you say are the biggest uh, challenges that are coming down the pike? Absolutely. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's sad to see philanthropy under attack the way that it is, frankly, um, I think it's it's and it's even more disturbing to see some of those attacks coming from within philanthropy. So um, and kind of being driven by people who are directly involved. So we are, um, you know, I, I think, again, going back to the original the original question and, you know, why why philanthropy is so effective. Part of the reason it's so effective is that it functions outside of government. And, um, you know, we see a lot of pushes right now to um, regulate um, particular vehicles that people use that are very flexible and and that that, again, allows them to be uh, innovative and want to give more. So uh, one example is donor advised funds. Um, This is a vehicle that uh, a lot of middle class Americans use. You don't have to be rich at Fidelity, uh, which is the biggest uh, donor advised fund sponsor. They are uh, they they don't even have a a minimum amount anymore. It's just they really are trying to democratize giving. And so people use these vehicles as sort of, you know, it's an investment in philanthropy. 
It's people who really deeply care about their charitable work and want to use the vehicles to, you know, be really effective in their philanthropy. Some choose to give their money right away. Some want to give it over a long period of time and really invest in their community for the long term. And, you know, at the roundtable, we we feel it's really important for people to have the option to do their charitable giving in the way that that they feel is most effective. What can I just pause here, Elise, just to yeah, sort of absolutely because I've learned from my own work uh, that not uh, surprisingly few people, despite their popularity, uh, donor advised funds. Surprisingly few people seem to still know what they are. So, and it, <laughs> if you set up a donor advised fund, as you say, like at Fidelity or any many many other places, um, you give money to that. Um, uh, you put money in that fund, and mm-hmm. you get. You can um, uh, take a deduction if you're itemizing on your taxes. You can take a deduction for that amount uh, in the current year in which you put money in the fund. But then you have uh, you'll have to give it away it, uh, out of that fund in that year. You can you can kick that down the line for uh, for as long as you want. Is that is that the case? Right it now? doesn't have a, a time limit on it currently. Right. That being said, yeah. the payout rates from donor advised funds are very high. Yeah, so people, um, people pay out. You mean by so people um, pay out at a rate? Was it twenty percent? Is that about what the rate is? Uh, yeah, that, some and, yeah. and it sort of depends how you how you look at it and how you look at the data of in versus out. And but yes, on average about twenty percent. And you know the payout rate for a private foundation is about five percent. I mean it's that's the required payout. Um, and you know so it's. They're they're already giving significantly more um, each year than private foundations. So, so what, do, what do people want to see change in these things? So there's a proposal on the table right now um, from from John Arnold and Ray Madoff uh, to um, John Arnold is a is a philanthropist and uh, Ray is a uh, is an academic and uh, they have partnered with some some major private foundations to push for reforms to donor advised funds. It's, it's essentially, you know, a group of, of very wealthy philanthropists telling the little guy what to do. Cause the, you know, these people, uh, before they're involved, major philanthropists control about $38 billion. And, you know, the average donor advised fund is, you know, a, a 160 or somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, not, not million and not billion, just to be clear, 160,000, <laughs> 160,000. Correct. So um, they want to accelerate giving. That's what it's called, but they want to accelerate it from, you know, people who are, who have far less uh, money under their control and, and sort of, well, they they maintain the right to give over a very long time horizon if they'd like. They're all set up in perpetuity. So it's just, you know, it's it's. Uh, I think it's. Um, it, I think it will really ha- it will really deter people from setting up a donor advised fund, and I think that means less that means less money in the charitable sector. And what we want is more money in the charitable sector, not less. So they want there to be uh, what, a higher required payout or a limited time horizon, which you can right. do away. So it's a it's a fifteen year um, time horizon that they're that they're proposing for donor advised funds. And again, you know that that time horizon doesn't exist for private foundations. Yeah, what what is their explanation for why donor advised funds should have to operate by a different set of rules than the founda- than the um, billion dollar foundations that they control? 
I don't think they've really accurately addressed that question. They just keep going back to there are a lot of assets sitting out there. People are hoarding their wealth. Um, and, I, you know, to me, when I when I hear them talk, I think that, you know, the intentions are, are probably good. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, those cases where it's like something bad happens and it's one thing and then it means you have to reform everything around it. So like there's, you know, it's just, I think it's one of those cases because there are people I think who have, you know, probably not behaved in in a way that we would all, you know, objectively say was, was the best way, you know, there's some public cases uh, where people have put a lot of money into donor advised funds and then not spent it um, in a way that it, you know, as quickly as people would have liked. And so, but that's just not, there's no evidence that that's pervasive in any way. And um, in fact, the evidence is is quite the opposite. So I think it's really just a, a case of, oh, see that thing over there. Now there's this massive problem when in fact that massive problem doesn't exist. Yeah. In your, in your opinion, it's a, it's a solution for a, a non-existent problem uh, and yeah. a solution moreover that is applied in, inconsistently across different kinds of entities. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's so Arnold Madoff proposal. Okay, that's on the table. You know, another thing that's on on the table and it's been um, actually uh, implemented in in California, possibly other states. Although I don't know, you can tell me. Is this re- um, requirement that nonprofits disclose the names of their donors? Uh, nonprofits meaning five hundred one c three. Uh, organizations. Uh, not, we're not talking about um, PACs or 527s or 501c4s. If you don't know what those things are, they're more political, or at least in theory, uh, than 501c3s are supposed to be. Um, what's going on there? Talk about this um, uh, uh, this real desire some to to make it known to everyone, to take away the freedom to give to an organization without you know, in in an anonymous way. Right. Yeah, it's it's a huge issue and it is popping up in in several states and also at the federal level. So we're we're really seeing an effort um to just force charities and nonprofits to disclose, you know, private information about who their donors are, what their home addresses are. Um and the thing that concerns us about it is in this day and age and we all see it, um there's just such I mean it's it's scary. There's a lot of intimidation out there, people. And, I, you know, it doesn't apply to one side or, an, or another. I mean, we, you know, it, it's both sides. So at the roundtable, again, we really want to protect everyone um, and, and their right to give privately. So whether they want to give to Planned Parenthood, they should have the, the right to do that privately because there are unfortunately scary people out there who would would want to do harm to those people just as much as conservative donors who are really being, um, you know, canceled, <laughs> shamed and canceled um, and harassed and intimidated based on their giving preferences. So there's actually a Supreme Court case um, that is uh, that is going to be heard, um, which were were we're hoping for a positive ruling on, and uh, it's AFPF versus Becerra. Um, you might recognize that name. 
Um, but it, it relies on a ruling from all the way back in the 1950s when Alabama tried to stop the NAACP from operating in the state by subpoenaing their membership list. Um, and the Supreme Court ruled in NAACP's favor. So it's it's time for this to come up again um, because it's been such a huge that issue. And really we're is the irony in the whole thing, right, is that it was a, um, a desire to, um, if we would put it in today's language, cancel or dox progressive uh, donors uh, in Alabama in the 50s that mm-hmm. led to um, uh, a, a ruling affirming the right to donor privacy. And uh, today it is um, progressives who are uh, promoting uh, the erosion of donor privacy so that, uh, uh, as far as I know, I'm not aware of any con- uh, conservatives who are, who are advancing these um, uh, leg- you know, new laws and uh, regulations. So I think con- conservatives definitely tend to be friendlier to donor privacy. Um, so, but at, at this point, but yeah, there is a huge reason why progressives should care about this too. And I do know progressives who care about donor privacy and, um, and, and understand the implications. So, I mean, it, money is speech. Um, and, you know, people's right to speech is protected. And um, we, we, we are very hopeful that we'll get a positive ruling here. Um. All right. Uh, let's take a break and we will come back and talk about some more threats <laughs> to uh, the philanthropic tradition here in America when we come back with Elise Westoff. All right. We are here with uh, Matt Smith as a senior consultant with us here at American Philanthropic and works out of Boston. How are things in Boston, Matt? A couple of inches of snow on the ground, but uh, I think we avoided the most of this storm. I know down south got a little bit more. So all in all, things are well. Only four more months to spring. Uh, we're recording this in, in what, February 2nd, uh, 2021. So what, June? Is that when spring comes to Boston? Or it- yeah, <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, Matt, I wanted to ask you about Donor clubs, major donor clubs. Um, a lot of nonprofits um, use them and seem to have success with them. What what are they, and and why should a nonprofit organization um, either start one or ramp up the one it has? So donor clubs are important because they show that you value your your top donors. Um, they can create a deeper sense of belonging amongst your donor community. And really, I like them because it allows an organization to give back to their donors who are donating to them. It gives them a sense of community. And especially these days, as our social circles are continuing to shrink, it provides an opportunity for your organization to give your donors uh, a sense of community and belonging. Um, and then also, they, they provide a natural way for your development staff to frame acts as well, which I'm sure they will appreciate. Um, provide some natural ways for your major gift officers or your development director to go into meetings and have a clear sense of how to move someone up the giving ladder from, say, a $5,000 to a $10,000 level. Um, yeah, it's a, it like makes the, the, uh, the ladder that you would like your donors to climb if they have the means and, and 
uh, can be inspired to do so. It makes that very clear, right? It's not just sort of um, completely vague otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, like that's something that I'm sure your development staff will appreciate kind of having those clear guidelines and direction of when you go into a meeting, having something that you can uh, very tangibly point to and say, hey, you're giving at this level. We'd like you to give here. And this is, you know, these are even some of the benefits that, that you might receive um, from doing so. And, and this is the value that you'd be giving back to the organization at that level. Um, so then, you know, how do you set one up? Well, it's practically a, a few steps here. You first have to set the levels of, of the club itself. Um, so, you know, depending on the size of your organization, you might start with, say, a $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 level. And, you know, if you're a larger nonprofit, maybe even up to something like a $25,000 level. And you want to determine the benefits at each of them of, of what the, the donors are going to be receiving at, at each of those levels. And while it can be nice to provide tangible items, say like a, like a mug or a bag or something like that, what we find is that donors really value access. Um, so maybe it's a conference call with the president of, of the organization or a a small cocktail party before your annual gala or something like that. Those are real valuable ways that you can provide important access to donors um, at, at, in your donor club. Um, and then you want to establish a name, one or two words that is the essence of, of what your organization does. You want to come up with a logo, something that retains the general branding of, uh, and color scheme of, of your organization, but that is distinct. Um, and then you want to advertise it. So create a separate landing page on your website, come up with collateral, um, maybe do a special mailing that introduces the donor club. You want your development staff to communicate to the folks that are now in may not have known previously. Uh, and so making sure that they're they're in they're in the know about, hey, you know, you're a part of this club, you know, you've been giving at the thousand dollar level and we're excited to welcome you into it. And, and these are the things that you'll be receiving. Um, and so those are just a few steps here practically to, to, to get it rolled out. It's actually not hard. Uh, it may sound intimidating. But you can you can just look at what other people do and get ideas for yourself. But I'll, I'll just leave people with this. They work. We know that, right? Uh, the data shows that these things um, these things actually help you raise more money. Absolutely. Yeah. No question. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Matt, for being with us. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. We are back with Elise Westhoff, President and CEO of the Philanthropy Roundtable. Um, Elise, I'm going to get you into some blurrier and maybe even less comfortable territory for you here in a second. But first, is there any other from the uh, from the side of the state, uh, meaning capital S state, uh, the government, the United States, state or federal level or local level for that matter? Are there other uh, things coming down the pike that you're particularly concerned about other than the Arnold Madoff proposal and this donor privacy stuff, attack on DAFs, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the Arnold Madoff is the most realistic of them. Um, I, I think there are, you know, the patriotic millionaires or another group that are calling for, you know, 
um, a mandated increase in payout for for all private foundations. I mean, there's really a lot of a, a lot of people calling for reform to philanthropy. So we're, we always have our our eyes open. But I think the Arnold Madoff proposal is the one that is it, it probably most likely to to have teeth. There's nothing keeping foundations from giving out more than five percent right now, right? No, no, and many, many, many foundations um, and people have decided uh, to to increase their giving, as we've seen in the numbers. So um, I think, again, it's it's sort of solution in, in search of a problem. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. curious. There's a uh, no mandate on DAFs, and there's an average of twenty percent payouts, and there is a mandate on foundations. And, and I don't know what the average is, but it's not twenty percent for foundations. It's not that much higher than five percent. I don't think. No, it's it's not, and uh, you know, but but I think it's really a, an individual choice for each foundation whether they they decide to sunset. I you know, I ran a foundation, private foundation, that uh, made the decision to sunset. So they spend, you know, their their spend down rate is is much higher than the five percent because they're trying to spend all their assets in a period of twenty years, and that was a, a deliberate decision. And I I support. That decision, I think it's a very good one for a lot of foundations. Um, and, and we, you know, I learned about that concept at the roundtable. Um, so the roundtable is very supportive of people's decision to spend more if they'd like to. Um, but we're also, we also see, you know, <laughs> I have a couple of examples of really prominent foundations that are in really, uh, you know, sort of, uh, challenged communities, struggling communities where there's just really not a lot of business and probably isn't going to be a lot of business. And so that means probably less charitable giving there, less foundations popping up. And over decades, that foundation has been a stronghold in that community. So in some cases, perpetuity, it makes sense. And um, and we support that decision too. So... Um... Yeah, I, I I I know you guys are, uh, <laughs> uh, support diversity when it comes to uh, perpetuity or not not perpetuity, uh, but one of the problems that seems to creep up even more with foundations that are set up to operate in perpetuity, um, at least from my anecdotal perspective, is um, a sort of float away from donor intent towards something, um, you know. Uh, that's different <laughs> than what the originating donor intended. And that might be one of the reasons why, along with just the p- current environment in which we find ourselves, um, that um, uh, we're seeing more and more foundations um, impose uh, what I would consider very sort of politicized requirements on their grantees, um, maybe certain quota of um, either racial or gender quotas on their board um, that they affirm Maybe some, you know, some elements or the entirety of of a critical race theory. I just saw this the other day with a with a, a client uh, filling out a grant application that had nothing to do with with um, any of that, uh, at least on the surface. Are you seeing more of that? Does that uh, for for a, an organization that's concerned about liberty and opportunity and personal responsibility? Does that does that concern you? Oh yeah, abs- absolutely. It's a, it's a huge issue, and it's something that we talk about internally quite a bit. Um, there's just really uh, a, you know, almost blind acceptance of this woke uh, 
culture and, and it's just pervasive in philanthropy. And, you know, what's sad to see is that so many of the, the charitable organizations that are out there doing incredible work that has absolutely nothing to do with, with race. It just doesn't. (laughs) And, you know, they're sort of being forced to, disclose a bunch of things or change their strategy to make what they do about race. And um, we think it really threatens, it, it threatens the vibrant and diverse culture that we have in the charitable sector, frankly. So it's something that we, uh, you know, we've written about that we're, we're actively talking about and that we're working with organizations on and, and with funders on because funders feel pressured too, yeah. by other bigger funders, you know, to, oh, yeah, to adopt sure. this sort of this mentality that, that, again, that people just have accepted blindly. And, um, you know, it's really I just think it's we're going to do a lot of damage to the missions of these places if we force these one size fits all mandates or expectations or even shaming Um on, on organizations, you know, I, I, I happen to know of one who, uh, that I used to work with that, uh, was a, you know, a camp for kids with down syndrome. And all of a sudden they were, you know, sort of being pressured to have this, um, all of these DEI aspects of what they do. And it just really took them off course and it was sad to watch. So, um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate and it's something that we're trying to counter. And I think the biggest thing is just starting the conversation because there isn't one right now. Why are foundations, this is always something that strikes me at least. So why are they so, um, fearful when in theory they should have the most freedom of anyone, uh, they have the money. <laughs> they have uh, there's that much, you know, government oversight. They're not being forced to do this kind of thing at this point. Um, what? Where does this fear come from? From uh, acting more independently? Well, I think we've seen it all across society, right? It's just this. It's it's this. Um, I mean, it's kind of the what's behind cancel culture. It's just the shaming and pressuring that you have to think a certain way. Um, and it's sort of just, it just takes over. I think it's more psychological than anything. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think we saw it over the summer and there are a lot of people who silently are, are just afraid to raise their, their thoughts. They don't agree with what's happening, but they're afraid of being called racist. They're afraid of, you know, the, what what the wrath will be of you know the the people who who believe in cancel culture and believe me there are people out there I've heard them you know I've heard some people in the foundation world say yeah shaming and canceling is great it's important it's important to get our the way right. to achieve our goals so it's not <laughs> it's not like a it's not an unfounded fear yeah. I, I think it's really real and people are. People are nervous about their careers being ruined. Um, so, having said all that, I mean, does this pre- does this uh, present a um, an organizational challenge for the philanthropy roundtable, where you're you're set up to sort of counteract excessive government interference into philanthropy? But what if instead our main problem is excessive social 
interference in philanthropy or excessive social pressure like we're talking about now because this is not again these aren't state actors we're talking about uh, as you say you're like yeah shaming culture or shaming and canceling let's do let's do more of it um what does that does that make you guys have to shift strategies in a kind of fundamental way or to add on new strategies well i think uh it is one of one of the things that we're focused on is philanthropic culture and and just culture more broadly and again starting a conversation a dialogue in a thoughtful way to say wait a minute we know not everybody thinks this way. I mean, look at the, I, I think the evidence for that is pretty clear. Um, and whatever you think of, whatever you think of the election doesn't matter. You know, no one thought that Trump would do as well as he did. Right. And, but, you know. From the shamer's perspective, though, that's exactly the problem, right? Uh, that's why right. we can't afford to have a conversation because too many people out there are simply wrong. Uh, so I, I guess my <laughs> deeper true. question to you is, how do you start a conversation when one when one of the dialogue partners does, doesn't believe in having a conversation? In fact, they think having a conversation is to concede to you a sort of legitimacy that you are not entitled to. Well, it's funny. I You know, it's definitely out there. But I think if you if you're courageous – and if you're thoughtful about the way that you engage, I have found that people, you know, there are there are some people on the fringes that are never going to listen to you no matter what you say. But there are a lot of people who will listen and who actually I, I can see. And, you know, there, there are just examples that I have in interactions that I've had with people on the left. Um, and, and we all have friends on the left and, you know, and I have friends on the right and friends on the left. But, you, you know, you just I, I've seen people be open. So I think we just have to keep trying, frankly. And I think, you know, I've seen more openness from from places like the Chronicle of Philanthropy. They've really they've been willing to put our 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 pieces out there and um, not everyone reacts positively, but a lot of people do. So that tells me that we need to just keep trying in a thoughtful way to counter this narrative and talk about why um, it's damaging to our sector. And we're going to keep doing that. So I, I don't actually see it as a challenge necessarily. I think it's an opportunity. We have an opportunity to make a difference. And um, we just got to keep going at it and keep trying and and be thoughtful in every and at every step of the way. So okay, I'll I'll get off this this topic now and start talking about the left and I'll and I'll switch gears and we'll 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 talk about the right. There's a there's another line of criticism, um, and I'll uh, in the interest of playing devil's advocate, I'll I'll give voice to it here and I, um, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, so. Uh, this this kind of really growing line of critique, as far as I can tell, kind of coming from the right, sees elite philanthropy, the big foundations, uh, as just the province of the hard left. And so it's just completely unaccountable to the masses, just like colleges and universities are now, if not more so. And um, so therefore, any efforts to sort of uniformly protect philanthropy from more oversight to reform, you're just ha- you're just aiding um, uh, the hard left, no matter what your, your motivations might be. And so th- that strategy is a, is a loser. Um, <laughs> what do you think about that, that line of critique? Have you, have you heard that? And how are you responding to it? Yeah, I've heard, I have heard that. And I think there is, um, there's certainly some truth to the fact that 
first of all, that the, the, these massive foundations generally lean left. You know, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, they, they generally do. And I think they would agree with that themselves. You know, they're, they're, they mostly see themselves as progressive. Um, that being said, you know, I, I don't think the answer is, you know, to, to give the government more power to, you know, over something that's really supposed to be free of government regulation. I just don't think that's the right way. Um, I, you know, does there need to be accountability in terms of following the rules? Absolutely. And, you know, maybe we need better enforcement on that. So if people are crossing a line into, you know, a political space that they shouldn't be playing in, then that should be addressed, right? Um, but but I, I don't think, you know, I, I, w- I think it's a bad idea to get ourselves into a situation where, something that we do could be used against us in the future. So I, you know, I like, I don't want to give government too much power to that, then they could turn around and use on the side, not in power. That's just not, it's just not wise. And even, even if it were, uh, not, um, oversight power, but just changing the structure of the game. So limiting the size of foundations, um, you know, you could do things like, you know, make it, uh, all, perpetuity is no longer an option you know it's a there's a time limit on foundation even that you would not be in favor of i just you know it goes against my free market tendencies um and i just you know so i don't we believe in the free market and we believe that individuals have the right to choose and you know listen one thing that i think the roundtable can do to help this is to educate donors about how to protect their legacy better because as you as you noted, a lot of these a lot of these foundations were set up by people who would just be appalled at what is happening with their money. And part of that is that they haven't protected their, you know, protected their donor intent in, in the best ways. So that is one of the things that I think the roundtable can help um, donors of the future do. But, you know, these these massive foundations that exist and are are not complying with the original donor intent. It's, it's a problem. I'm not going to deny it. Yeah. Hey, well, here's another trend. Um, I'd love your opinion on that. I don't know what you think about this, but. Um, or at least it seems to be a trend for donors to set up not uh, private foundations um, that are operating within the IRS framework, but just LLCs. And John Arnold most famously just uh, did this. I think the end in his the foundation he'd set up in favor of an LLC doesn't have reporting requirements um, uh, really at all as far as. Uh, as far as I know, uh, I know of other donors on the on the on the right who have done that. Um, what do you think about that trend? What does that say about what's happening in philanthropy? Is that a positive development or a negative development? What's behind that? Well, I think people want to use all the tools in their toolbox to um, move the ball forward in a way that they they feel is most effective. And so, you know, it's. When you sign up for a private foundation, you sign up for certain things, right? Um, one of which is that you have to complete a 990 PF and it has public information in it. And there's a disclosure, 
disclosure element and people who who don't want that can use other can use other tools um, but they but they don't get the benefits that a private foundation offers so I, you know to me I, I just I would be always be in favor of less regulation for the most part um, and so I, I think that it's you know, a tool that people can use. And again, it doesn't offer the same benefits as some of the other tools you use. All right. So we've talked about a lot of the defense you're forced to play uh, these, these days at the philanthropy round table. What are are you, um, are there a couple of reforms or any reforms you would like to see? Are there places where you all are playing offense and trying to um, um, get things done uh, to make um, the tradition of giving more vibrant? I think what we're, we're mostly focused on is, you know, making change within the sector and, you know, again, starting dialogues. Um, So I want to see reform, but I want to see that reform be a reform that comes from people who are dedicated to preserving what we believe is, is an incredibly important part of our society. And so you know, I don't, there's nothing that we're proactively pushing in terms of, you know, changes to the sector, um, except at the government level. Um, but we are pushing for change within our sector and for more dialogue and for more thoughtfulness around how to be effective in your philanthropy and what that means in terms of, of allowing people to be free to pursue the things that they care about. What are, um, you know, you, you've worked now, you've only been at the round table since June, but you worked with the Snyder foundation. You've been very familiar with this sector for a long time. Um, do you think of one or two examples, you don't have to give names. You don't want to, although if you want to, that's fine too, of giving done right, uh, by, especially by foundations, maybe major, major, major donors as well. Um, they're really effective. These thought really smart, um, innovative, can you think of any really good examples you would share? Yeah. I mean, I had to be careful about picking favorites here. Just make it up. We have so many favorite charities, but I think, I know you know, you do. I know you do. At least <laughs> love you all. If you're in we the round. All the same. <laughs> we don't pick between our children. Um, but no, I, I think uh, there are, I think the groups that are doing a really good job are the groups that are, um, you know, thinking about what it is that they want to achieve and are, um, you know, being really creative about problem solving. Uh, I think what makes philanthropy so great is the risk factor. You don't always, you don't always win, um, but you can place bets that could potentially lead to something that's really incredible. And I think we've seen over time the role that philanthropy has played and in so many challenging issues facing our country. I mean, even looking back at, at just COVID and the role that philanthropy played in, in research and, and treatment and, and just down to, you know, getting groceries to people. It's just, it's, it was absolutely essential in getting us through this crisis. And so um, we really look at groups that are, you know, are, are using creative approaches and, and willing to take risks. So risk-taking, that's a characteristic you would say of, uh, of the 
givers that you're most impressed by? I think what, so. Yeah. So uh, conversely then, um, what, uh, what he's least impressed by again, no, no names, but uh, there, of course we would now be talking about nobody who's actually part of the round table, but you know, what are, what is one or two things you've seen characteristics or strategies that you think are just particularly ineffective or bad, you know, for um, civil society? I think one thing that is an issue is and in our sector is when philanthropists don't really engage with the the you know organizations that they're they're trying to help. Um, we have so much ex- expertise on the ground, and so the idea of not listening and engaging in dialogue and thinking of them as a partner, I think, is a is a really um, is is just a bad way to approach philanthropy. So, you know, at the At the Snyder Foundation, we always felt, I always, I never viewed it as a, you know, we're the funder and you're the grantee and this is the power dynamic and you will speak when spoken to. Um, (laughs) It was always, it was always just like I had, it was a partnership of mutual respect and it was um, moving, moving towards shared goals together. And um, I think when people approach things that way, not only is it more fulfilling, but it's also more effective because you actually can help them problem solve and think through issues that they're facing because you're sitting in a different place where you have a kind of a broader view of what's going on maybe than, than um, maybe they do. So I just think approaching it that way as just a partnership and, and instead of a a power dynamic is um, a, a better way to look at it. Elise Westhoff, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Where can people find you uh, in the roundtable uh, online on social media? Um, you can find us at philanthropyroundtable.org. And um, we are on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and Facebook and all of those places, even though... All the things. I am, yeah, I am not a, a huge user of those things, but the round table is. So <laughs> maybe someday I'll catch up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Elise. And um, thanks for being with us, like givers, doers, and thinkers. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.